Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and and Mayu, what's going on, everyone? Apologies in advance. I think, uh, you know, we've been taking some weeks off here and there. It's actually our second go at the preamble, not going to lie. So um, ultimately, I think it just comes down to we try to keep the preamble as relevant as possible, as close to as possible. So then we end up trying to record this on like a Thursday or Friday. Right now, we're recording it Friday at 10 a.m. before the episode releases. But Austin, what's going on with I you? I honestly, I can't remember the last time we recorded on a Thursday. I feel like it's always consistently it's been always a Friday, Friday. now. <laughs> at least we're consistent and you know that, what I've though. noticed? I've been listening to some of our old introductions. You never say your last name, eh? Are you ashamed of it? Yeah, be proud. Should I say my full name? Should I say my full name? My Eurasian Tabaraja? Would that work better? That might be little by little. Work your way there. Yeah, things are things are going good on my end. I'm actively deal hunting, and by actively deal hunting, I mean just like analyzing deals and taking a look at everything that falls on my plate. You mentioned this in one of your older reels saying that a lot of good opportunities are actually on the MLS and it's being overlooked. And I totally agree with you because the sellers have already been testing the market. A lot of the times they're not getting what they're looking for. So their expectation has dropped and the realtor is probably sick and tired of showing the property a million times Mm -hmm. and, and probably is setting expectations for the sellers. It's true. Yeah. Off market, a lot of sellers are probably a little bit more sticky. They just, you know, are in denial about what's happening with the housing market or they they probably know, but they just don't think it's as bad as, as maybe it is in reality, or maybe they think it's worse, right? So you can still definitely get some deals off market. I bought two properties. One was on market, one was off market. Had another two offers out. Both were on market. Those ones didn't pan out and it is what it is, right? But yeah, so I think the key is just keep looking at both like on market and off market for sure. Make sure you guys are plugging in, reconnecting with your realtors and stuff like that that you used before. What's your plan for the project? The one that you bought, what's the scope of work on oh, it? Oh, yes, yes. The story behind that. Actually, sorry, why were you are you competing or is it not competitive anymore when you're putting out offers just out of curiosity? I don't I don't really compete. So here here's like a story that I didn't get. Uh there was two houses that hit anyone that watches Scarborough probably saw this one house that hit the market for like I think it was like 629 or something ridiculous, way, way, way under market value, like list price, right? And then at the same time, there was another house that hit the market, I think at 699 or somewhat whatever the numbers are, right? So we were like, okay, like both of these meet the criteria that I'm looking for. Which one do we focus on? I was like 629, I'm not even going to bother because everyone's just going to be competing on that. That one's the one that I think the Toronto Star had an article that like there was like 60 offers and it sold for like a million fifty, which was way overpriced, right? Mm. So I'm not, I'm not even bothering with those kind of properties. The 699 one property, I think it got listed on a Thursday. We maybe were at the house on Friday and we were supposed to submit the offer on Friday night, but we ended up submitting it Saturday morning just because, you know, I got some other shit to do. And then when we had submitted the offer Saturday morning, there was already an offer in play. So then I was like, okay, you know what? Like I'll compete with one other person, right? Cause that doesn't mean that you can't get a deal. Cause I'm going in clean, no conditions, quick close. Right. Mm-hmm. So you might still be able to get it at a decent price. And then that same day, another two offers came in. So then there was four offers. And then the realtor just called everyone and said, Hey, like come back with your best and final. I'm like, this is my price. No. Like I'm, I'm not really okay. like trying to like, fuck there. Yeah. Right? So you're trying to minimize competition. And like, if you're competing, it's against rational people and, and that's about it. Yeah, exactly. I think you and I have somewhat of a similar strategy differing in some ways. So like similar to you, I'm looking on the MLS right now. I'm trying to find the listings that are overlooked. 
right? So like exactly what you were saying, one of them was lower than the other. So you targeted the higher, the mm-hmm. one that was listed higher because less eyes are going to be on it. That's kind of what I'm doing now. Honestly, I haven't been focusing at any particular city. One day I was looking at Cornwall, another day Sudbury, another day Windsor, another day London, like just all over the place at this point, yeah. just to see where the deals are. And yeah, I'm looking at like older listings where the description might not be too favorable of the property. It might say like selling an as is condition. It might say give 24 hour notice because there's tenants inside or whatever the case is, maybe not too many photos and it's just sitting there. And I'm trying to get the story from the realtor. You can quickly identify whether the story makes sense, whether it's still an opportunity or not within the first five minutes, right? You ask them, what's the general feedback been from other investors? Because obviously this thing's been listed for 60 or 90 days. Oh, like, are they willing to do vacant possession? If not, are they willing to allow me to do conditional on negotiating with tenants, right? And the tenants don't even have to be vacant. I just need an N11 sign prior to closing, right? Like stuff like that. So I'm trying to get a bit more creative to make these deals work. But like you said it best again in, in one of your other reels, if you guys aren't on my reels, you guys are slacking, slacking. Key performance indicators, like just like analyzing and putting out offers, right? And seeing what sticks and what doesn't. Austin's been watching my reels. Hey, you trying I've to been, steal some I've content, buddy? I've been that shit, taking notes. <laughs> you know? It's okay, we all do the same shit anyways. <laughs> I guess on that topic, it's been a while since we did like a Rise meetup. So for anyone that's interested, we're planning to have a meetup on the 18th. Time and location to be determined, but probably be around 7 p.m. Most likely some sort of a bar downtown because that's just kind of what we like to do. So if you guys are available, make sure you come out, connect. We'll see. We might, I don't know if we'll do any kind of presentation. It might just be straight like networking type of an event. But yeah, I'm out. Check that out. Austin, have you been out to any networking events recently? I know that was your one of your goals. No, I I haven't. No, (laughs) I need to get back on networking events. So I've done done phone calls and I met up with people. I haven't been to events, right? Like I would be like, hey, what do you want to do? You got to have like a one-on-one with every single person. Yeah, no, it's with, um, I guess it's with certain people where we we have a lot that we have in common or we're vibing really well. So it's like more of a, it's a friendship thing, if that makes sense. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I need to start going out to networking events again. And I keep on saying that, but it's definitely been a little bit. You know about, what it is? <laughs> There's not too many networking events that happen in downtown Toronto, eh? Yeah, that's a big thing. I don't like driving outside from yeah, downtown yeah. Toronto. It's just such a pain Lazy in the shit. ass. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I, I I will be out in the rise one, hopefully. No, I'm joking. No, I'll definitely be out in that one. So I'm I'm excited to see some uh, familiar and new faces down there. Anyways, we're going to jump into today's podcast episode with Justin Chung. He's uh, an OG in the real estate game, been in the game for a decade plus. He's actually a father and has his own podcast, the Money Dad Podcast, where he actually gets into financial literacy for kids and how to get your kids to uh, level up their money and wealth game as well. Being an OG in the real estate game, there's a ton to take away from this because he's seen different market conditions. So we get into a little bit about how he's pivoting, analyzing his deals during this market, if he's still buying or not, and also joint ventureships as well. Being in the game for 10 plus years, there's a lot to take away from this episode. So hope you guys enjoy. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Justin Chung. Justin, how's everything going? Uh, Everything's going great. How are you doing, guys? We're doing great. We're doing great, Justin. So for anyone in our network, uh, any of the listeners that might not know yourself, why don't you give us a quick rundown on yourself, how you got started in real estate and what you're up to today? Sure. So I'm a real estate investor. I got started about 15 years ago. So back in 2007, really starting with student rental properties, picked up a couple of properties in Waterloo, which is where I went to school. 
and actually bought those for nothing down. And then slowly acquired one of those every year. And then decided back in 2011, basically, that I want to grow my portfolio at a larger scale. So I joined an organization, started to really get serious about real estate investing, started to make some contacts, network, and built up a team. And that's when I started to focus more on another market. So in Ontario and Hamilton, bought more single family, small multis like duplexes and triplexes in that market, and really started to do that with more JV partners as well to start growing that portfolio. And then I, along the way, I decided, okay, you know what, let's try to dive outside of Ontario and let's get into other provinces like Alberta. And so I, I started to invest in that province as well when things were quite hot in that marketplace and cash flow was doing really well. So again, did the same kind of thing, built out a team, started to acquire more properties for myself as well as with other joint venture partners. And then I would say in the last couple of years, I've really circled back to Ontario during the pandemic, really focusing on doubling down in Waterloo as well as Kitchener. Uh, and then recently, actually just closed a couple of days ago on a property in the Niagara region uh, in Welland. And I'm going to do my first burr on that property because typically, you know, I've done more stabilized property, cosmetic renovations here and there. So I'm excited for the latest project as well. That's awesome. So you had a year, 15 years of real estate investing experience. So you've probably seen a lot of changes during that 15 years, a lot of ups and downs. So let's get started with the beginning. Kind of one thing that we like to do with uh, experienced investors is kind of dive down in the beginning into what got them into real estate investing and uh, starting off with their first property and then kind of fast forwarding into the future. The reason I got into real estate was because it was one of those things where I realized that it was one of the best wealth creation vehicles. I probably didn't know it at the time. It was one of those things where actually my father was a residential realtor. He'd always encouraged me to purchase investment property. I kind of, not that I wasn't interested, but I was focused on other things, kind of growing, starting my career, I'm a chartered accountant and growing my career there. So I wasn't necessarily keenly focused on it. And then basically back in 2007, which is when I bought my first investment property, I just, I think, oh, about to uh, engage to my now wife. And I decided, okay, you know what? I got to get serious. You know, there's going to be some big commitments coming down the road. I need to make some time for this. So I started looking uh, actually Toronto, which was where I live. And at the time, things were quote unquote expensive. I couldn't find anything that worked. So I decided to go back to Waterloo, which is a market that I knew very well. I went to school there throughout university. And I decided to get into the student rental business. So I bought the first property. And at the time, I actually didn't even have a down payment. My dad said, okay, you know what? I'm going to lend you a down payment. You're going to pay me interest on that down payment, but you can use that to purchase that property. So I did that. I bought the property. And so I operated it. I managed it myself. It was a five-bedroom bungalow close to both universities, you know, both the Waterloo and Laurier. I managed it. And I learned a lot of things along the way like that year. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I was just kind of figuring out as I went. But what happened was after a year later, so the same person that I bought the first property from, which was a university professor actually who was looking to retire. And so we negotiated basically an off-market private deal. I approached him again. And I said, look, are you looking to sell off any of your other holdings? And he was. And so I ended up breaking the mortgage on that first property, refinancing it. And so using the equity that I built up, as well as the mortgage pay down over that first year, I used that as a down payment to uh, purchase the second one. To me, like in my mind, like that was sort of the light bulb moment. For me, I said, okay, you know what? I can get into this real estate game, not even really using funds of my own. And I can use this to acquire properties. And I saw that there's tremendous potential and, and opportunities within real estate, you know, obviously with appreciation, cash flow, mortgage pay down, as well as the tax benefits. So 
I decided, okay, this is the way I want to go and start to reorient my life, even just in terms of my professional career around learning about real estate and understanding the game. So I'm always curious because I guess that would have been around in 2007, 2008, I think you said, right? Yeah. How did you realize that you could refinance your first property and buy the second property? What was that thought process like? How did you go about just learning? And, and it was a different era, right? So like now I feel like everyone knows about the bird. Everyone knows you can refinance. So that's cool. But I think a lot of the fundamentals that you guys, the way that you learned back then are so applicable today, right? So I'm just curious how you went about figuring that solution out. You know, honestly, I think at the time it was probably more about like, immersing myself in books and just trying to learn about strategies and trying to be creative. I think it forces you, you know, by trying to think back to like that time and how I got to that point, I think it was really more about just trying to learn from others. And yeah, you know what, there wasn't this, all the podcasts out there and, and really like a huge amount of information perhaps, but from whatever I could glean from whoever I could talk to, I just kind of picked up that strategy as, okay, you know what, here's the value of the property. And, and at the time when I negotiated that first deal, I knew I got a pretty good deal, like, and the market value was a lot higher. So I, I already could, you know, in my mind, that's what I was thinking down the road. Like I could tap into that equity. And at the time, actually the first purchase, what I did was I put down a, um, you know, I got the mortgage and I think I did a, a home equity line of credit at the same time. Like I did that on the, pretty sure I did that on the first property, but for sure I did that on the second property because I knew that down the road, that this is going to be a way to fuel my growth in terms of using the equity in those properties to use as down payments. That's awesome. So I find with a lot of investors, they start similarly with you where they start growing their own portfolio. They realize that not only can they scale quicker by raising money, but also soon enough, they're going to hit a financing tap out right on their side of things. So they're going to need to get joint venture partners. How was that transition like for you? Like, who were you raising money from? How did those conversations go? And for a lot of people, they think that raising money is instantaneous when they want to raise money in a month, they're going to find a partner. Could you walk us through your journey of getting your first JV partner and how you were able to eventually get that lead source of capital? Yeah. So in the beginning, when I started to buy, I wasn't even thinking of joint venture, right? Like it was really buying for myself. And it wasn't until really in 2011, 2012, which is when I started to pick up more properties in the Hamilton region. And I joined that real estate group where I began to just understand, okay, you know what, like, I'm eventually going to get tapped out of capital, like as much as I'd love to keep diving back into my properties and using equity there, I'm going to eventually run out and I didn't want to get to that point. So I learned about the strategy of JVing and really partnering with people who were looking to do the same things in terms of, you know, wanting to get into the real estate market, but not necessarily wanting to do it in an active way. So I started to just learn from that organization and just some of the books and uh, literature and material that I, I started to read around that time. And one of the things that I learned from, I mean, it was actually Russell Westcott, who, you know, was part of the organization. He started to talk about, okay, you know what, your circle of influence, right? Like, so you can start to try to raise money from outside investors and people that you don't know, but it's going to take a lot more work and perhaps more effort to get those people because you don't have that trust built up. And so intentionally said, okay, you know what? And, and using that system, it was more like who within my circle of influence do I know that I already have a pre-existing relationship with, I've known them for many, many years. They trust me. They see what I'm doing and they want to be part of growing their own portfolio and wealth as well. And so I started to really just identify and actually literally, I think, sat down and started to write down people that I knew that might be interested. So that was kind of my thought process at the time. And so I've partnered, for instance, like on a number of deals that I've bought, my very first joint venture partner was my brother, who 
you know, so we grew up together and he had actually purchased a student rental in Waterloo as well. And I guess what happened was like, he knew obviously the work that was involved in that. And when I approached him about, okay, you know what, why don't we work together on this where you can be the money partner, the passive partner, and I can do all the work and heavy lifting. And so he was sort of all for that, right? Because he had seen based on his own experience and his own time capacity and commitments. So I think that was an easier sell. I think it, again, it comes back to like already having that pre-existing relationship. And I would encourage those out there looking for JV money to look at your existing network of people that you know and already have within your circle. Actually, really funny. We just had Russell on. We just did a recording with him like two hours ago. So oh, no. it's like, wow. oh, we had Russell that's on awesome. and we have someone that executed on the strategy as well. So that's yeah. really ironic. And I also agree with what you're saying. I think um, a lot of times investors don't consider other investors to be the perfect JV partner. But a lot of times, like we understand the struggle behind it. We understand how much work can go behind like the deal and turning over a project and stuff like that. So when another investor has a good deal, a lot of times it's kind of co-mingling and business done between investors. So that's great. So one thing that you said early on in your introduction is that you were doing your first kind of burr in Welland. Now, it sounds like whether it was intentional or not, that first property you bought, you kind of did a burr after a year, right? Like you did a little bit of sprucing it up and you'd bought it under market value enough that you were able to refinance it anyways and going into year two. So when you were raising capital from other partners and when you're presenting deals, when you're presenting burr deals, do you ever do deals that aren't burr deals? Like maybe like that's just more cash flow oriented. How does the presentation change to JV partners when talking about different types of deals? Yeah. So when I'm talking about different types of deals, it really comes down to, uh, and again, this is a system that I started to follow using the Real Estate Investment Network at the time when I joined them. But it was really trying to first understand like what the needs of the investor are. It was a questionnaire that I would actually have them fill out potential for a relationship. And I would have them sit down like, where do you envision yourself five years from now? Like, what are your goals? You know, do you, are you looking for cash flow? Are you looking for uh, quick flips here? Like, what exactly are you looking for? And like, what experience do you have in this regard? So I would really qualify. First thing I did was, okay, identify who I want to talk to. And then second thing I did was, okay, let's qualify these people and see if there would be a fit. So they fill it out. We have a conversation. And I think in the beginning, I look back and I think about some of the people that I approached. Now, I remember putting together like this initial like PowerPoint deck with like pictures of like my portfolio and like stuff like that going through that. And I realized, you know, looking back on it afterward that you don't need to do any of that really. Like, I think it's really a matter of like having a conversation face-to-face, sitting down with each other and understanding like, what are your goals versus what I'm looking to do and what I can bring to the table and then making sure that that's a fit, right? And a lot of the people that I ended up partnering with they were looking for more, um, you know, nothing crazy appreciation, nothing like quick flips or anything like that. They were looking for something stable that was positive cash flow properties in markets like Ontario and Alberta, where where I was operating. And I wanted to make sure that before I entered into these JV agreements with my partners, that I myself had the experience in those markets because you know I've always felt like if you're going to invest someone else's money that you should be more responsible with it than as if it was just your own, right? So with your own, you gotta, if you lose it, I mean, it's, it's on you. But if it's other people, I always felt like you need to have an extra level of assurance. And that, the way I did that was really make sure I got comfortable in my market, understand what the rents were, understand what I could buy these, pick up these properties for, what the cash flow was. And that way I could confidently say to my partner, I, mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but this is what I've done. This is what my portfolio is doing right now. This is the type of investment that I'm investing in and fits with what you're looking to do. Let's do something here. Yeah. One important point that you mentioned there is qualifying and figuring out the investor's goals. I find that a lot of the time, 
not even just in real estate investing, but life in general, we tend to project our thoughts and feelings onto others. So for example, if for me personally, if I want a full burr, that's not every single money partner, right? Like in the game, we know those are unicorn deals, but you might have to analyze hundreds of deals, throw tons of offers before you get that full burn. It could be a year till you get that, right? Taking out appreciation. But for other investors, that might not necessarily be what they're looking for. Exactly what you were saying. They might just want stable income, cash flow, something that's reliable and like not going to have a ton of repairs, right? Which they're okay with leaving money in it. But us as investors, we like to project everything we want onto other people. So that's something that me, even like personally, I'm trying to improve on as well. Carrying forward from that process, um, once you qualify them, what happens next? Do you make them sign a letter of intent? Is everything just by word and having trust in the investor? Yeah. So what ends up happening is that once they fill out the questionnaire, we sit down and have a conversation, see if there could be good alignment or good fit between the two of us. And if they say, okay, you know what? Like I'm interested. And I basically, what I'll do is I'll sketch out the rough parameters. So like, this is the area that we're going to focus in. This is the market. Like, Ontario in this city, this is the purchase price range of what we're going to, what I'm going to look for, what I'm going to engage my realtor to go look for. And here's the timeline of what we're looking to do. And so, yes, I actually get them to sign a letter of intent that shows one, they're actually serious about it. Cause I found actually there's a couple of times where, you know, I get to that stage and you'd see people like back away or they're not sure yet. So, or they're not ready. And that's fine. It's just that for me, I think rather than first putting out that effort and having my team to go look up for deals and me analyzing deals, I want to make sure that this person that I'm going to partner with is, is serious and committed to doing so. So definitely have them sign that letter of intent for sure. Once I have that, you're like, okay, let's go. And then obviously march forward and try to find a property that fits what we talked about. Mm-hmm. Moving forward from there, because you've definitely done a bunch of joint venture transactions, birds and operas, right? What went well, what went wrong in your experience over multiple transactions? Uh, me and Austin have you know great stories and terrible stories as well, but I'm curious from your side, what were some of the learning points as well? Yeah. So in terms of what went well, I, with the JV partners that I'm working with, we picked up properties that met the criteria of what we're looking for. What didn't go well? I mean, I wouldn't say it didn't go well, but you know, obviously you, you hope that there's appreciation, right? And that you can, in five years, when the mortgage comes due, you can then refinance the property at a higher value, pull up the money, pay back the investor. And then therefore, yeah, they have nothing left or very little left in the deal afterward. I would say there's some market like Alberta, for instance, I did a bunch of deals out there where things were hot. Cash flow is great and cash flow still is great there, but the appreciation has not been there. Right. So, right. and I didn't make any promises initially, but it's like, so if obviously things go well, like in real world, then we want the money and pay you back. And I had been able to do that for a bunch of deals there, but not all of them. So it's one of those things where, I would say it's probably what didn't go well. Yeah, no, and I think that's a major challenge is that there are always going to be kind of market factors and forces outside of any investor's real control, right? And I think that's definitely the challenging part if you have a joint venture partner that maybe doesn't understand that or expects a higher rate of return, which in Ontario, people have some pretty high expectations now, right? Yeah. I'm wondering from there, like, how did you scale up your business? Because I think one of the main pain points that myself and Austin have is that real estate doesn't pay a lot. Right. Meaning like you're kind of like net worth rich, but your cash flow like mediocre. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you have multiple properties, there is definitely a large administrative burden on that. Right. So how did you continue to scale up your business to do multiple joint ventures? Or did you at some point migrate back towards solar ownership? Right. How did that business evolve? Yeah. So what I did was as I continue to scale a portfolio, 
it was actually really a mix of both buying for myself or my JV partner. So, and I bought a ton back in basically 2012, 2013. There's deals that came across my table and I liked the deal. I talked to JV partners and see if that was something else that they want to add in. And if we could do something, if not, I bought it for myself. So, and I basically always wanted to make sure that the room that I had, I always had room to do the deal. Like I didn't want to get to a point where there's an opportunity that came up where I had to pass on it. So that's what I did really um, as I began to scale. It was really a mix. And I would say like my portfolio now, you know, I have call it 20, actually the one after the Welland property, it's 26 properties now. And it's a mix like half and half, half are JV with JV partners and half are on my own. So it's one of those things where I would love to continue doing more deals as long as I have the capability, then I'll do it. And then obviously provide that opportunity for my JV partners to participate in those deals as well. I think I probably could do an even better job of just marketing myself and putting myself out there to look for other JV partners. I found that, as you said, there's that sort of administrative burden to managing a portfolio of properties. And you know, I've outsourced, let's say, a lot of the property management to in like markets like Hamilton or another uh, in the Alberta market. Obviously, I'm not there. But some of the properties I still manage myself in terms of property management day to day. What I've been learning is that I really need to, as I continue to scale this, I need to really build place like processes and more people to support what I'm doing. Because what I'm finding now is that it's gotten to the point where, yeah, like this multitude of tasks and things that need to happen for each property. And my time is limited to be able to handle all that. And I need to basically put in place some support to help alleviate that burden so that I can focus on business development, growing my portfolio, and just other, you know, doing other things that I want to do more higher level tasks as opposed to getting bogged down by the day-to-day of this stuff. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like when we start off the initial outsources property management, but then as you grow your portfolio, you do need that support staff because you're communicating with several property managers over a portfolio of 26 properties. That's not very passive. That still requires a lot of work because it's a lot of uh, small decisions that need to be made. Oh, there's a thousand dollar repair. Got to go check the bank account. Not enough money. Got to communicate to a JV partner oh, across 26 properties. Yeah. That adds up mm-hmm. to a lot of time, right? So yeah, I mean, I think a VA might make a lot of sense for you. I know Mayu and I, we hired a VA and it's definitely alleviated a lot of pain for us. Oh, I got to get some tips on where and how you guys got that. Yeah, yeah. There's like a real estate VA company that is US-based. The owner lives in the Philippines and connects with different like virtual assistants there. Um, We'll talk offline. I'll I'll give you the contact uh, once we're done with this podcast. But over the past 15 years, being experienced in the game, One thing that we like to talk about with experienced investors are pitfall and obstacles as well, because it's not like 15 years of sunshine and rainbows, right? Although over the long-term appreciation is great. There has to be phases in that journey where you hit a wall and it was like, either it was make or break. It's like, how am I going to get over this hump? So do you mind sharing a couple of those experiences with us? Yeah, for sure. The one that sticks out in my mind as you say that is, I mean, yeah, it's not all unicorns and rainbows. There was a triplex that I owned with a JV partner in Hamilton where it was causing a ton of issues. Like basically the property management company that I had at the time, I subsequently fired, you know, tenants that weren't paying, there was bed bugs infestations. At one point there were squatters at the property. I think this one tenant had like cats, like 15 cats and the SPCA had to get called in. There was a time where and I'm glad I didn't because it's one of my best performers now. But you know, when all this kind of shit's hitting the fan, it made me realize like why some people 
once start things start happening where things are going wrong, your mind sometimes can go to say, okay, you know what? I gotta sell this thing. I wanna just exit and just I wanna be done with these problems, right? Because I don't want to deal with it. And I remember at the time, like that thought crossed my head. And I consider myself someone who is uh, who has a pretty high like tolerance for stuff that can go wrong because I I feel like I can just figure it out or talk to people who know the answers and, and can figure it out together. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest ones. I remember on that particular property, there was a lawsuit. You know, so there, there's just a lot of different things going on in around the same time. But the lesson that came out of that was really being able to say, okay, stay the course. Like for every situation and every problem that can arise, there is a solution. You got to figure out what that solution is. And a lot of times that solution can involve spending money to deal with and, and get rid of that problem, but it's not insurmountable. And so that sort of, I think, mindset I had going through that. And then definitely afterward, after the fact, I realized like, just stay the course, right? Like, and thankfully I had a, a patient JV partner who was able to understand what was going on and understand my vision of, okay, we just have to get through this period of time, stabilize the property, get better tenants in there, hire a better profile tenant. And a lot of these problems will go away. So it was really more about staying that course on, on that particular situation and being able to understand and have that long, longer term perspective and vision and say, look, it's not great right now. Things are tough. But if we can get through this, we can come on to the other side. And now, thankfully, obviously, the properties in Ontario have obviously done really, really well with appreciation over the last, especially the last couple of years. But so that property is, has tripled in value, let's say, from the time that I bought it. But yeah, so that, that's one example I can think of. With the years of experience, your investing strategy, like you can kind of tell where it's changed. Um, you started off in the pseudo rental space in Waterloo, and then I'm assuming his prices kind of went up there. It sounds like you switched over to Alberta. What is your investing strategy today? Where do you see potential for others looking to get started in real estate investing now? Because for a lot of you know newer investors, Alberta, it does seem pretty attractive for quite a few people, right? I think maybe Kitchener Waterloo might be out of reach, right? So I'm just curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, I'd say, and the reason why I switched strategies from student rentals, I mean, I was actually pretty keen on student rentals. I thought, yes, the management is, is more work, but the cash flows were phenomenal. And so the reason why I switched actually at the time, this was back in 2009, 2010, the lending environment was changed. The lenders started to become more weary of, yeah. of you know, lending more on risk, student rentals, yeah. more risk, you know, they're more risk adverse, I guess. So that's when I really decided okay, I want to switch strategies to more single family. Yes, they were not as lucrative in terms of cash flow, but more stable. The ability to uh, qualify for mortgage financing was greater. At the time, I really wanted to do stuff that, that I could replicate, right? Like a system I could replicate over and over and over again. So that's when I switched to Hamilton. And then, you know, in terms of Alberta, why I switched there was because I liked that market. I still do. The cash flow was a lot better. You know, at the time I was buying in Alberta, it was really more, again, single family, semi detached homes, very affordable price points that had great cash flows, right? Like, you know, I was cash flowing probably like between five and $700 on some of these properties. If I was to do it again, I would still do the same thing. But in terms of my strategy today, I like the Ontario market because of the fact that um, I just feel like in terms of the fundamentals there are strong. I'm in you know Ontario and I feel like, yeah, you know, demographics wise, the GTA and Greg Golden Horseshoe area is really growing and, and will continue to grow because of you know, all the immigration that's coming into Canada. 
and the fact that most a lot of people are going to settle in that area. So even like, uh, so for instance, the bird that I'm doing in Welland, the reason I did that was because, so I started to actually learn about a strategy where I could take a single detached home and then convert that into a legal three unit building. So I thought that would be a great, if I could pick up something at a, at a great price point, spend six months, you know, spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to renovate the house and, and create the units. And then obviously we refinance that so that I can pull up my down payment as well as all the rental money. Then that would be a great strategy to use and replicate because it would leave you with a property that still cash flows, pull all your money out. And yeah, you're basically creating value by turning one into three. So I like that strategy and I'm going to you know do it here. So I would say, yeah, to investors who are looking to figure out like what strategy, what market should I look into? I mean, I think in real estate, the best thing is that there are a ton of markets out there and there's a ton of different ways to make money. And there's no right or wrong way, really, right? Like it really depends on your own risk preference, your risk profile, the time and energy that you can spend on understanding these markets and making something work. Wanting to look into that I have not yet, but it intrigues me is like, for instance, like the Airbnb rental arbitrage strategy. So that's something that sort of I want to get more educated on and, and talk to investors and people that have used that strategy to grow their portfolio. And they're not even, you know, they don't even own the real estate, but they're using less funds to put down and cash flows are probably a lot better. So I just think, yeah, there's there's just a ton of different ways to make money and grow wealth in this market in these markets. And it's just really a matter of educating yourself and, and finding out and aligning yourself with what makes sense for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Perpetual learner, right? You don't want to say that you know everything because at that point you're not going to grow anymore. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about current market conditions more so on on your investment criteria. Has anything changed? Are you still actively buying? Are you being more cautious of buying? Like how what what are you, what are you doing right now to prepare for I don't want to say a downturn because there's already a downturn, but uh like I guess what are you doing in this current uh market condition? <laughs> like to me in my mind and one of the reasons why I bought that property uh this like earlier in the last couple of months is I think it's a great buying opportunity out there. Like I, I think the market was so hot leading up to let's say February of this year, where people were just FOMO. It was like, okay, people were just paying, I don't know, like just to try to get this deal. You had bids where like I remember there's deals that I was trying to get where you're like number 30 in a, in a line of buyers trying to bid on this property. So I feel like the conditions today are a lot more favorable to getting deals done for an investor. And actually, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of people who they are trying to get into the real estate market and trying to do this stuff. And it's funny how people's mentality changes, right? Like, so in, you know, back earlier in the year, it was like, okay, you know, I'm going to try to find a property and they were willing to overextend themselves. But now those same properties are sitting on the market. They may be overpriced. And they're now people are kind of like, oh, they're kind of hesitant and, be, and pulling back. I can understand the fact that, yes, there is more uncertainty given borrowing costs are a lot higher because of interest rates rising. But at the same time, Purchase prices are those can come down lower as well. Like you can go in, and the, the the deal that I bought recently was I put in an offer that I actually didn't think would get accepted. To be honest with you, I just put in like basically a lowball offer, and it got accepted. I was actually surprised at that, but at the same time, I think now are conditions where you can do that. You can actually put in conditions in your offer. You can actually put in prices like lower than what they're asking for. Like these are some things that you couldn't do up until. Um, quite recently. So I think now is a great opportunity to buy. And yes, you want to make sure that the deals that you're doing, I mean, depending on your strategy, but let's say, you know, for me, I'm looking to do, um, you know, I'm trying, I'm doing a burr, but at the same time, I want to make sure that there's still going to 
cash flow at the end of the day and carry themselves. So yeah, I think it's a perfect time to buy. Awesome, Justin. So before we wrap up the podcast, we know you created your own podcast. You want to just quickly talk about that podcast, what your objective there is and, uh, yeah, how, how yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I, I launched a podcast called the Money Dad Podcast back in April of this year. And really, it was a way to help parents raise money smart kids so that it best positions them for their financial future, right? Like, I think right now there's a huge gap in terms of financial literacy out there in terms of not understanding and not being familiar with you know, financial concepts and having the financial education really to uh, put yourself in a good position. So I wanted to be part of the solution. I thought, the best way to do that was really start at a young age. I think, you know, looking back at my career, you know, I look at what you guys are doing. You guys are doing phenomenal stuff, right? And I wish that I had known even from an earlier age what to do and how to use money and grow it so that it's working for you as opposed to working at a full-time job and just kind of not having enough money to get by. So I wanted to be part of the solution. And so that's why I decided to, um, you know, start this podcast. For those up, you know, listeners up there who are interested in tuning in and, and ha- you know, our parents themselves or have kids or young people in their lives that they want to help, then yeah, go to Money Dad Podcast. Money Dad is one word. And um, you know, I want to really just inspire and, and educate others out there. So I bring on every week a bunch of different people, whether that's authors, educators, other real estate investors, business owners, and entrepreneurs. And we talk about ways that we can help parents learn strategies that they can pass along to their kids and have conversations about money. Because I think money is a taboo subject in a lot of situations or we don't talk about it enough with our young people. So that, that's what I'm doing right now too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a super important topic, uh, especially since they don't really touch on that at all in school. I know like people who are super, super smart making like multiple six figures income, but they don't yeah. know how to control their money. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it has nothing to do with being smart. It's just like your behavior and learning the right behavior. I can already see that you have a website for it. You're a lot further than us in our branding. <laughs> we don't even have a website for our podcast yet. So that's awesome. The website, the uh, podcast and all of that will be down in the show notes. Uh, I'll, I'll swing it back my use way. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Yeah, Austin, Austin was trying to steal my questions there at the end. But um, Justin, <laughs> so for everyone, everyone that's listening, I guess, where do you see yourself overall uh, like five years from now? Yeah. So five years from now, what I want to do is continue to grow the portfolio continue to scale up and doing that on my own, as well as with other JV partners. I think there's a lot of people out there that want to be involved in real estate. And again, don't want to spend the time or the effort to be the active partner. And I'm more than happy to do that, be on the active side to help them in their journey to growing wealth. So that's what I can foresee myself doing uh, in five years, continue to do that as well. In terms of strategies wise, I can, I can see myself doing more burrs and then getting into an understanding like Airbnb rental arbitrage. That, that really intrigues me as well. So I can see myself exploring that route and understanding if that's a good strategy to use. And, and if it is, then I'll get into that as well. So, and then, you know, that's on the real estate side. And then on my podcast and financial literacy side for young kids, I can just continue to see myself developing, whether it's courses, programs, or something to continue to help parents raise money smart kids. Awesome. And I guess the second question is for a newer investor in today's market, what's the main risk that you see or any piece of advice that you'd want to share with them? I, I would say for the newer investors, their biggest risk actually is not taking action. I think a lot of times people spend the time doing analysis, talking, getting sort of educated and up to speed, but then ultimately not going forward and taking that action. You know, if I look back at my own journey, 
I'm so glad that I was able to surround myself with people that were doing things that I wanted to do, right? Like I remember actually early on in my journey, there was, I met a bunch of people and there's one particular guy who, you know, he sat down with me and he explained, he actually had like 20 something properties and he sat down with me, you know, he invited me to his home and he walked me through like his process. Like he explained things like, and at the time I only had a couple, right? But it gave me like a vision to work towards. And at the time I thought it was crazy. Like I thought, okay, how am I ever going to get there? But for the new investor, the biggest risk is not taking action because my favorite saying is like, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? It's like 20 years ago. When's the next best time? It's today, right? So I think you got to look past the headlines. Don't get caught up in sort of the fear that's out there. Get educated, understand your markets, build up your team of people, build up your network, and then take action. Because I think if you don't, you're going to kick yourself many years later and uh, regret it. So that, that would be my biggest risk. Justin, that was some great advice there. Really appreciate you jumping on this podcast, man. I love the contribution you're making to the community because I feel like that's a much needed niche where there's a lot of podcasts targeted towards investors, investors of all ages, whether that be like middle age, newer investors or older investors. Your podcast takes it like kind of in a different angle, targeting parents to build financial literacy in their kids. So appreciate what you're giving back in the community. If people want to reach out to you, connect with you, learn more uh, from you, how could they do so? Yeah, they can, uh, I guess, connect with me in two ways, either one uh, through Instagram at Money Dad Podcast. So you can find me there. So you can shoot me a DM or um, find me there. Or you can email me at justin at moneydadpodcast.com. Perfect. All of that will be down in the show notes below. If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to like it, rate it, leave a comment. Because like right now, we're stagnant on likes, guys. You got to pump those numbers up. (laughs) I've been keeping an eye on it. I've been keeping an eye on it. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.